so I don't lose my voice. How's everyone doing? Good. Good to see you. I'm glad you're back. Um, so uh, this is week two of uh, this, the three-part section we're doing on the doctrine of God, which is part of a broader or larger uh, Sunday school curriculum that we're doing on doctrine in general, I believe, doctrine for life. Um, <clears throat> so this is the second week, and the next week will be the last week that I'm teaching on the doctrine of God, and we'll speak about the Trinity in particular. So a couple of housekeeping notes before we launch. Um, one, last week I mentioned several times uh, the difference between, or the seeming tension between doctrine and devotion, between theology and life, like living it out. And we were sort of asking the question, is there tension here? Does there have to be tension here? Right? And to clarify, what I was not attempting to say was, you should all go out and buy yourself some academic theology book and read it. Um, that was not my intent at all. Really, I mean, if you want to do that, by all means, that would be cool. Um, but th my point is not do something, right? Um, what I was trying to get at is essentially this. What we're doing here, last week, this week, next week, and for the remainder of the Doctrine for Life thing, is theology. It is. This is systematic theology. This is the doctrine of God. It's where it all begins. And so, really what I'm saying is, hey, I get it. If, if you don't really like reading theology books, I can't blame you at all. But, like, try to pay attention, and hopefully I can, like, say something that may be useful to you at some point. So that's really what I was coming at with the whole doctrine versus devotion. Um, <clears throat> and I was mentioning to Craig on the way in, this was a really hard week to put together, mainly because um, there's just so much information when it comes to the doctrine of God, as you may know. Um, and having to pick and choose and find out what I can say in is just, it was impossible. So I've come up with a, a scheme of talking about some really uh, three or four, maybe five attributes of God that I think maybe we don't think about as often. I know I hadn't before. And hopefully we can sort of delve into those and maybe like whet your appetite for the topic as a whole. That's, that's my hope. Okay, so uh, before we begin, let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you again that we're able to meet together here <clears throat> and that we uh, have the opportunity and the joy to speak about you. I ask that you would um, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us understanding, that you would give me wisdom and clarity of speech uh, to be able to speak about you truthfully, God, and that ultimately you would be glorified and that our lives would continually look more and more like you because of what you've done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first point up here is review. And I thought it would be helpful to briefly review what we spoke about um, last week. And that is, first, the creator-creature distinction. Right? We've, we've kind of talked about this quite a bit recently, I think. Um, and, and the gist of it is this, that God, who is our creator, is utterly different than us, who are the creations. And that between God and us, is uh, what's referred to as the creator-creator, the creator-creature distinction. Um, it's, we cannot access God unless he somehow reveals himself to us. Um, because if you think about it, as, as people that have been made, um, as creatures, we just it's impossible for us to get inside the mind of God um, and understand how exactly it works, unless he showed himself to us. Uh, and then we spoke about general and special revelation, right? Uh, special revelation being scripture, where God reveals himself to us and gives us knowledge that leads us to salvation. It tells us the way to, of salvation. On the other hand, general revelation is the way that God has shown him, himself to us in nature, the things that he's created around us, and that gives us enough knowledge to be without excuse. We cannot look at the world around us 
the Apostle Paul tells us, and not know that there's a God. We don't have an excuse because he's shown to us that he's powerful um, and that he, he creates good things uh, for his creatures. But that is not enough knowledge to lead us to salvation, right? You can't, you can't find out that God is Trinity by looking at, I don't know, Yosemite or something like that. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Um, that is why he's revealed himself to us in a special way in Scripture. And finally, we spoke about uh, three stranger paradigms, right? Um, and I mentioned that there was this really famous uh, philosopher in the 20th century who said that all world religions can be fit into one of two categories. It's either uh, the stranger we never met, right? Uh, that would be, you know, broadly you would categorize atheists and deists and possibly agnostics in saying like, hey, there's us and we have no clue if there's anything else out there, so we're just going to say there's not anything else out there. And we don't believe in anything, right? The other, the other group into which everyone else falls into is overcoming estrangement, right? Um, yeah, there's a God, and uh, we're like not all agreed on what or who God is, but really the problem is that we've fallen away from God, and if we can just get back to him through reincarnation or through meditation or through good works, it'll all be good. We can get back and meet the stranger that we're estranged from. But the third paradigm, which Christianity falls into, is uh, meeting a stranger. Meeting a stranger. Which affirms that uh, there is this distinction between the creator and the creature. God is so far above us, and because of our sin, and the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, we are unable to get back to God. Uh, and because we're creatures, we can't know God. But God, who is a stranger and who is estranged from us, has stepped into our reality in space and time and in history and has revealed himself to us. All right, and this is where Christianity falls, uh, meeting a stranger. And so that leads us to our next point, really. How do we meet this stranger? Uh, how does God come to us and show us who he is? And what has he shown us about himself? What can we know? What is valid? And so point two, uh, I've, I've labeled as, is God hidden or is God revealed? What are, what are we looking after? Are we searching for the hiddenness of God? Or are we looking for what God has shown to us, what he's revealed to us. Um, and this is something that Martin Luther, the, the famous Protestant reformer, spoke about. Um, and he essentially said this, that there is, because God is the creator, just endless worlds of information about God that is hidden from us and that we don't have any access to because he's the creator and we're the creatures. And so he basically says this, it's none of our business. Stop trying to find out. Because as you attempt to find out, you're going to come up with your own notions of who God is, and then you're going to create something that isn't really God. Uh, an example he gave was this, that um, <clears throat> during his time, this, this was happening. You had these... Uh, medieval priests and monks who would beat themselves and meditate and try to get this vision of God, right? And what Martin Luther said was this. He said, I've tried that. I was better than all of them. I worked harder than all of them. I was more sorry than they were. Um, I was harder on myself physically than they were. And I climbed that ladder back to God to see him. And he said, and when you get to the top of that, you do see a blinding light. But remember that the devil clothes himself as an angel of light. So what he was saying is, as you work and work and work, and as you try to get into this hiddenness that we don't know, it's like you might find something that you don't want to find. Instead, he said, 
we have to look for the God that's revealed to us in Scripture. And how is God revealed to us in Scripture? Well, ultimately, he's revealed to us in Christ and the cross. That is what we've been given. That is what has been revealed to us. And so this is the question I'm just kind of like teasing out a little bit. Um, what, what are we looking for when we say we want to learn about God? Um, well, I, I think, and I think it's proper that we say what God has revealed to us in nature, in general revelation, and what God has revealed to us about himself in the Bible, in Scripture, in special revelation, is really as far as you can go. And anything beyond that, you're starting to get into this murky, weird territory. And so I have two quick examples from history about two different ways people have gotten it wrong because they were looking for something that was hidden and because instead of starting with the God that's revealed in Scripture, they started with themselves. Okay? They said, well, you know, we can't really trust Scripture and we don't know if all that stuff really happened, but what do we know? Well, we know how we feel. I know what I experience. I'm going to find God that way. Uh, the first person that did this, you may have heard of him. It was Immanuel Kant. Uh, he was a 19th century German. I guess he would call himself a theologian, but he was a philosopher. And he basically said this. He said, okay, look, science has shown us that um, we can test the things we see. Uh, we understand gravity now. We understand that we move around the sun and the sun doesn't move around us. Uh, and we, we understand this because we can test things that we can touch and we can weigh things and we can mix things. So I'm not going to accept that there's some God out there because I can't see him and I can't test him and I can't measure him. But I know there has to be a God because when I look inside myself, I have a conscience. And when I do something that's wrong, I feel guilty. And when I do something that's right, I feel good. And every one of you here has the moral law written on their hearts. You're not supposed to kill. You're not supposed to steal. Uh, you're not supposed to covet. And because we all have that moral law written in our hearts, that means there must be a God. If there's a law, then someone had to give the law. And so we'll start there. We'll start inside and we'll figure out who God is based on that. Okay, I mean, he, he said there was a God, right? The problem is that in order for you to want to know God, you have to feel guilt. You have to feel good when you do good stuff, and you have to feel bad when you do bad stuff. And you can see, perhaps, how this can lead to a search for God that's all about your emotions. Well, I want you to know God. I want you to know the creator of the universe. So look inside yourself and see that you're bad and you need to fix yourself and you need to work really hard because the only thing he's really given you is your conscience. So get to work. All right, that's a problem. I, I think we all agree. Second, very briefly, there was another approach uh, by another German. It all comes out of Germany. Whose name was Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher. And Schleiermacher basically said this, no, it's not about guilt. It's not about guilt and doing stuff. It's about, as human beings, we have this need for God. We have this feeling that we're absolutely dependent on something out there. Call it the universe. Call it feeling good. But we all need that. And because we feel that need, we really need something. Well, there must be a God. Okay? So we start with the feeling of absolute dependence on the universe and on each other, and we're all one, and then we finally get to God. The problem is that if you don't feel like you need God, what do I need to do? Well, I, may, I need to make you feel like you need God. And if that means I'm going to use like praise music repeated over and over again, if we're going to sing just as I am ten times so you come to the altar, it doesn't matter because I'm trying to get you to feel really emotional so that you'll look for God. Right? These are just two brief examples of how 
when we start with ourselves and we look inside before we start with God, it can very easily go the wrong way, right? So Martin Luther, the Reformers, the streams and the waters in which we swim, our fathers, if you will, all said, no, you have to start with God. And you have to start with what God has shown us about himself in Scripture. Because outside of that, you can't know anything about him. It's hidden. So only that, only what's in Scripture, what God tells us about himself, can we, we can trust that. So we need to start with God and what he's revealed about himself in Scripture. And, do we have a microphone? Uh, just, just something to keep in mind. I am going to ask a question and ask if you have any questions. And essentially it's this. We'll, we'll swing back around to it. Oh, thanks. I should have looked closely. Thank you. Uh, the question is, maybe that was a bit of a fire hose and I apologize. But how have you seen or have you seen how starting with ourselves and looking inwardly before we look to Scripture can go wrong? Um, that really is my question. Have you seen, has it happened to yourself, um, that starting inwardly before looking to God and what he's revealed can go wrong? I will, I will go first. Um, I grew up thinking that that the Bible was really good, but ultimately, I should be looking for something more inside. I should be feeling like I'm a Christian. I should be measuring my, my Christian walk by what I'm doing, how I'm feeling. Um, and because I started with myself, it led to years of absolute instability. Um, well, I feel pretty good today, so I'm doing okay, right? Thanks, God. Or, wow, I'm doing horrible. Like, I don't even know. Like, are you even there? Um, that, that, I think, is relatively common, but I think that that's one example of how uh, starting with ourselves and not with God in Scripture can go wrong. Uh, what do you think? Anybody have any uh, opinions, experiences? Can you pass that to um, Something I feel like that can go very wrong with looking in ourselves is because we are corrupt, sinful people. You look at mass murderers. I'm sure Hitler thought what he was doing was a good thing. So I feel like just seeing stuff like that, we'd all come to our own conclusions on what is good and what is bad. So I can see how that could go very wrong and very the opposite of what God actually commands and wants from us. Thank you. Um, so just what you were saying about like starting with, um, or like what Kant said about we have the moral law written on our hearts. That is true, and I think that is a really um, good proof for God. We can look around, and no matter who you are or where you're from, everyone knows it's wrong to murder, for example. Um, so that is true, and that's a proof for God. Um, I think, and so I was kind of wondering, well, like, how is that really wrong? And I think it's because... Um, it depends on whether I actually feel guilty for what I did. So I can think, you know, I, I whatever, to enter the sin, whatever. Well, it's not that bad. I don't really feel bad when I do that certain thing. So I'm not that bad of a sinner. I don't really need God. Whereas if you start from Scripture and it tells us that even our good, so-called good works, are just worthless, um, it kind of puts it in perspective, I guess. Thank you. That's Eamon's back there. Like, back, back. Eamon. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
what I've realized from my experience is when I look to myself first, I, I start justifying and making excuses for myself and justifying it to kind of okay it. And then when you look into scripture, you kind of get a reality check that you are sinning. Um, so when you look to yourself first, I just, from my, from my experience, I tend to make excuses and justify my sin to make myself think it's okay. Mm-hmm. One more. Uh, I, whoever you're closest to. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it seems like in our culture, you know, people who trust in the evolutionary process and all that, um, uh, God didn't create man, man created God. Isn't man wonderful? So it's just a con- man has the capability of conceiving or having the conception of God. So that leaves you with no real God. Who's actually there? It's just in man's mind. Is a man wonderful? I never came that way, but um, I think that's where we're at. Well, one more. All right, Kevin up here. <clears throat> Can you pass that to um, It's helpful to remember that God is not passive in this search. He's said that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And he's hidden things from the wise and revealed them to babes. Um, He says, if you seek me with all your heart, you shall surely find me. So um, he wants us to know him, but there's a path along which we, that we follow. And it's not our path, it's his path, his path of faith. So for us to really um, think that we're doing this all on our own is, is sort of folly. Uh, But to, to rest in that and and enjoy in the fact that he is actively working um, in us through his spirit that we may come to know him better. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, for for all of our talk, our I th- believe fully that it's true that we cannot know the Creator on our own. He still in Scripture tells us to know him. That's kind of a command all over the New Testament and the Old. Um, so, and, and that, that's what really we're doing here is, okay, what can we know about you? What have you shown us about yourself? What we want to know, all right? Um, I think something that may have, have uh, may kind of tie into what you said and I think leads into the being and attributes of God is a, the first autobiography ever really written was by Augustine. Um, and he writes this at the very beginning. To praise you, God, is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. This guy is amazing. Um, so what, what Augustine is saying is that we have to know God because everything about us as creatures whom God has made is designed to be completed by God. Which is why I think, and a lot of people speculate about this, that that nothing we really do is ultimately satisfying, right? I mean, you can do really well at work for a few weeks. It's like, yeah, that's great. But still, you know, it, we all know that work isn't satisfying. Jobs, uh, accomplishments, and things like this. I mean, we experience this as believers. Um, it's very obvious from the world around us that everyone feels this way. We're incomplete. And Augustine is saying, yeah, it's because you were created by God to rest in God and to know him. And until you rest in him and know him, you're going to be restless. You will not find completion. And so as we move into the being and attributes of God, ultimately 
we, we want to know as much about God as we possibly can based on what he's told us about himself, while still recognizing that as we're here and we experience day-to-day life and we go to work and we commute, um, that we're still going to feel that restlessness until we're with him, right? Um, but I think that learning more about God and understanding who he is is vital to us being firmly grounded in our faith. So let's begin. The being and attributes of God. That's number three. I'm going to start with a statement from uh, the Belgic Confession, Article 1. And then I'm just basically going to try to explain it as we move along. It says, We all believe in our hearts... And we confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. Eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just and good, and the overflowing source of all good. I think you have that in your handout. Let me read it again, just the first part. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. Uh, This, I think, is a great little statement. It's an encapsulation of all that we believe about God, that God is simple and a spiritual being. So, I want to move first to, what does that mean, simple? God is simple. Um, It really means this, that God has no parts. Well, what does that mean? We, We affirm and we agree because Scripture tells us that God, when he, when he revealed himself to the children of Israel, uh, said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. There's a single being called God. Now, this is going to open up a huge can of worms in the early church, which we'll talk about next week, which is how can he be one and three? But God is one. And he has no parts, which means this. While we say that he is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-loving, uh, He is a jealous God. He is an angry God, although he's slow to anger. He is all these things, and what we don't do is, well, he's one part love, plus one part goodness, plus one part jealousy, plus one part omnipotence equals God, right? And the reason why this is important is that often, very frequently, you hear this, well, My God wouldn't do that. I believe in a God of love. I don't like that angry God from the Old Testament. I don't like that jealous God. That sounds really weird. Um, It doesn't really suit the way I feel about the world. It's all about like helping people and feeling good. And so God must be good like that. And so what this is saying when it says that we believe in a simple spiritual being, is that you don't just get to pick and choose. God is without parts. He is completely all of his attributes at the same time. You don't get to pull on the string and say, I like this part, you know, and I'll leave that part over there. Uh, We cannot, because he is without parts, we cannot rank his attributes. Well, okay, I get it. It says all these things about God, and we, I mean, we can't say that the Bible's not true, but really the one that speaks to me is love. I mean, that one kind of like hits me right here. The other stuff, yeah, you know, we'll worry about that stuff later. I don't really care, right? Um, we see this in history. The medieval church focused on specific attributes of God to the detriment of other attributes. They focused on his justice. 
and his righteous anger. So much so that they pulled Jesus into it and said, well, I can't really approach Jesus either because it says he's going to judge us. So maybe I'll just talk to his mom instead because sons love their mothers, you know, and so she can put in a good word for me. So I'll pray to Mary. I mean, it, it sounds kind of silly, but there you see what happens when we go outside of Scripture and say, well, let me use a human example. Jesus is mean, so maybe his mom is nice. Right? Um, <clears throat> that's a medieval example. Um, today, it swung the other way. We mentioned it. The prevailing notion about God today is that God is love. And he said, judge not that you be not judged. So don't judge me. God loves me. I can do whatever I want because he loves me. And I said a prayer. You know, I said the prayer and I signed the card and we're good. Um, Or sometimes it comes out like this. I don't know if I like God because it says he's love. But he allowed his son to be crucified. How do you square that with love? I'm okay. I don't want any of that. Right? I couldn't worship a God who does that. The statement that we believe in a simple spiritual being whom we call God is simply that His attributes, the things that we're going to talk about, are not in conflict with each other. They are not. Uh, He's not like a pie that you cut up and you get to pick what you want. Right? You get the whole thing. Next, let's move to the self-existence of God. God is self-existent. Uh, the word for this in the, in the systematics books is aseity. aseity. God is self-existent. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. Or in Psalm 50, God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. And this is in the context of him telling them, like, I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need you to do stuff for me. It's mine already. I don't need this stuff. You've got it twisted because you think I need you. God is self-existent. He relies upon absolutely nothing. To be, which is is really hard for me to understand and for probably us to understand, because every moment of our life and our existence, in every moment, we are reliant upon something outside of ourselves. I'm breathing air right now. I'm standing on top of this really big ball, the earth, you know? And if it were a fraction closer to the sun, we would be incinerated, And if it were a fraction further away, we would freeze to death. And I need to eat, and I need to drink water. And we rely on something outside of ourselves at all times. God does not. Because before there was anything, he was. So this rules out us thinking that somehow we're doing something for God, right? I I think that this should help um, sort of like cut off that notion. I'm doing something for you. You have to bless me. I sent in the money for the anointed handkerchief so I should get my healing. Like I did the things you need me to do and I like did the formula correctly and I, we know that you just want us to praise you and you just want us to do these things for you so that then we can get what we want from you, God. And the answer from the scriptures is no. It's mine anyway. And I made you. And I don't need you. <laughs> right? Now, God's self-existence or his dependence does not mean that he is uncaring. Or he's not interested in you or I. Or that he's aloof. 
right? That he's off doing his own thing and he can't be bothered with our problems. Instead, it means, as David said, that God is his rock. God doesn't change because God doesn't rely on anything. So we can go to him. With our problems, we can go to him with our concerns. Because this God, who is self-existent, who doesn't rely on anything, who doesn't need us, has chosen to make us, and not only to make us, but to enter into an agreement with us, a covenant with us, and say, I will be your God, and I will hold on to you. That's pretty amazing. Which really leads into, or flows into, the next attribute of God, which is God's immutability. The fact that God does not change, which to me is very comforting. Uh, this God doesn't need anything outside of himself, and so I think it stands to reason that he doesn't change. God doesn't change at all. Oh, Psalm 102, I love this. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure and their offspring shall be established before you. And in Malachi 5.6, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Right? You can't get too much clearer there. Now again, this is different from us. Um, we change all the time. I change all the time. Like from morning to evening, the things that I think I want can like just flip a switch. And I'm like, why did I ever, like, what am I doing with my life, right? Um, I, I change. Um, we, just by virtue of being human beings, change. Uh, the human body is not the same from moment to moment. You're growing older. You're growing up. You're beginning to break down. Like we're always in a state of flux. God does not change, though. And this is comforting, right? Because in Malachi 5.6, God is talking to the Israelites who have been worshiping idols after he made a covenant with them and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They've been worshiping idols. Um, they've been doing all of the things he's told them not to do. And what does he say to them? I, the Lord, don't change. Because if I did change, I would destroy you on the spot. It's very simple. That, I think, as we agree, at least this church doctrinally, that even though we're saved by God, that, that we're still sinners, that we still, still deal with sin throughout our lives. And it's only because of the grace of God, and it's only because of the work of Christ, that we are worthy to even look at him, right? Because of what he's done for us. If God changed, what if he changed his mind? It's over. And if you want to think about it, change how? Does he change for the better? What does that mean about before? Was he worse? Does he change for the worse? And now he's worse than he was? No. God doesn't change. An example from Jonah. We went through Jonah recently. Um, God has said that he's going to destroy Nineveh. And he tells Jonah to go and preach to them. And after a rather circuitous route, like Jonah finally goes there, and he preaches to them, and they repent. And it says that God relented. God changed his mind, it says. right? So this, this I'm, I'm giving this as an example. Is this a problem? Does he change his mind? Right? And what does Jonah say? Jonah, does Jonah say, I knew it, 
I knew my doctrine of God was wrong and that you do change. You know? No, he doesn't say that. He says, this is why I didn't want to do what you told me to do. Because I know you. You're just and you're loving and you forgive people. I knew that you were going to forgive them. So did God really change? No. He used human beings to carry out. This is a a long thing we could get into. But Jonah, as a story, is confirming to us that God does not change. Um, I mentioned this book last week, Barrett. Um, it's a really helpful book if if you're at all interested in this. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's really helpful. Yeah, he's talking about Jonah. When we read that God relents, we should keep the context of each passage in mind. Although in the moment it appears as if God has changed his mind, if we have a bird's eye view, if we zoom out, we see that God is doing what he's promised all along. He's promised to save his people from hundreds and hundreds of years before he's doing what he's promised. He cares for us. He wants us to repent. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. So God does not change. We said uh, he's simple. We can't just like pick and choose what we like. right? We can't say, well... He's just, but he's loving, and the two, I don't like it because I like one more than the other. God is self-existent. He doesn't need <clears throat> anything outside of himself to like keep him going. He is everything in himself, which is why we can rely on him. And we just said that God does not change. God does not change, which is very, very good and comforting for us. Because as we change, and as we struggle with doubt, and as we struggle with sin, and as we slowly, sometimes it's torturously slow, become more and more conformed to his image, but not as fast as we know we should, we know that God doesn't change, and he's made a promise to us. The next attribute I want to talk about is probably one, I'm I'm guessing, that isn't frequently spoken about, which is that God does not suffer. It's, it's known as the, the doctrine of divine impassibility, that God doesn't suffer. Why are we even talking about this? Well, this is incredibly, this is like the example over the past, since World War II, really, that has, has caused people to question God. Barrett says that the, the, the idea that God does not suffer naturally comes out of the fact that God doesn't change. Right? If, if God doesn't change at all, then how is it that somehow he could like suffer emotions? Um, and then in 1 Samuel 15, as an example that kind of hints at the fact that God does not suffer emotions... The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now the problem and the reason why suddenly people began to question this, because this had been affirmed that God doesn't suffer and he doesn't change and he doesn't have wild emotions, all the way back to like right after the resurrection. Everyone just believed this, because God's a perfect being. Of course he doesn't change. It was really uh, as a result of World War II and the Holocaust um, where there had been this notion because of people like we spoke about, Immanuel Kant and Schleiermacher, there was this notion that we're all good. We're all God's children and we all have this divine spark inside of us and if we could just really get together and work, technology's going to help us. Everything's going to be good. Like, utopia is going to come because we've learned how to work together and then World War I and World War II happens and completely crushes that notion. Uh, and a man named Jürgen Moltmann, another German... Um, <clears throat> Germany's super cool. I, like, if you're from Germany, I, I love German food. Um, but he's, he's German as well, Jürgen Moltmann. And... Um, 
He, was, he fought in the German army. He was a prisoner of war uh, in the UK. And he describes this scene. It's a really gruesome scene. Well, aside from seeing the death and the destruction and the, the, uh, the Holocaust of the Jews, he also witnessed a hanging where they hung a, a kid. And the kid was dangling there for like two hours before he died. And someone in the crowd said, where is God? Like, you know, they used to do public hangings. And someone in the crowd is watching this, horrified, saying, where is God in all of this? Like, what is happening? Everyone is dying. Like, all of our cities are just piles of brick, like... Um, what is happening to God? And someone in the crowd said, I think it may have been Moulton, and said, God is up there experiencing this himself. He's hanging from that wire. He has to be. Because if God doesn't suffer with us, then he's not God. He's a demon. And I don't want to serve that God. So really it comes from a response to the question, how do we explain suffering in the world? Um... There is so much, it's kind of like the book of Job, where Job is trying to wrap his head around, why am I suffering? And in this case, it's why is the entire world plunged into war, and millions and millions of people are dying as combatants, they're being killed because of their race. How could God let this happen? And the answer for them was, he's with us. He's suffering too. And as he suffers with us, he's learning. And he's becoming better. And he's leading us through his own suffering to utopia. This, though, does not match up with what we see in Scripture. James tells us that evil does not come from God but that God experiences no change. There's no shifting shadow. There's no, there's no up and down. There's no like emotional roller coaster in God. And so it's, I think it's helpful to say that um, in this doctrine, the doctrine of, of God who does not experience suffering, again, we're not saying that he, he doesn't care, right? This is the problem. It's like black and white, right? It's either God is suffering with us in World War II or he doesn't exist or he's bad, right? And, and what Scripture tells us is that he cares for us. Um, he's not uncaring about the things that happen in the world and to us as individuals, And the answer, frankly, that we're given, like what answer is given to Job? Why are you suffering? And God doesn't say, well, okay, I'm going to let you in on this hidden secret, and I'm going to let you know exactly why this is happening. Uh, He doesn't say that. It's kind of shocking. He talks about who he is. He gives him the doctrine of God. It's like, did you create this? No, you didn't. Um, And so the answer we're given, though, I think is an answer that points forward, which is God has promised that everything that happens to those whom he loves will be used for their good, and ultimately that he will hold on to us and bring us to heaven, where we will be glorified. And so... The answer, in part, is that that the okay. The answer to suffering is not that God suffers. The answer to suffering is even though we may not know why, God has promised to use this in your life and in my life to bring us to the end. Now, before we wrap up, I have. Like three minutes, 
for comments or questions because, I mean, I feel like that was a lot. And you can see now why I was like really concerned about this week. How am I going to get through everything? Um, so, are there any uh, questions? Let's say questions. Sir. Okay, so Christ, one person with two natures, fully God, fully man. His entire passion falls only on the man's side. And we have to be careful to say that. It doesn't fall at all on the God side. Uh, the, the correct answer, I believe, is that yes. Because the second person of the Trinity, the Son, cannot experience change or suffering in himself, then we would say yes. It is the human nature of Christ that suffers on the cross and experiences change along with us here when he lived on earth. Thank you. Yeah, Hannah, she's way, way back there. Oh, other hand. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I think the definition of suffer would kind of have to be made clear because clearly God doesn't, he's not diminished or harmed by any, you know, anything that could happen. But if he says like he cares for sparrows and, and we cast all, all our cares on him because he cares for us, then in the, you know, every atrocity that's ever happened or, or sin or sorrow, if we experience like a little bit of grief over it, and, and that's probably a reflection of our um, being in his image and his nature, um, and if he can change, not change his mind, but, you know, relent or do whatever he wants, um, then he, I don't think he could look on, you know, um, a, whatever, death or murder or something, and and there be not some kind of godly grief on his part that doesn't, you know, he's angry with the wick every day, and then he says, this is my beloved son, I'm pleased in him. You know, we reflect his emotional, like, infinitude or whatever, but, um, yeah, just thought. Excuse me. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think this, off the top of my head, the best way to answer that, and it's not a full answer, and I'd love to talk to you about this more, is that the the idea of, we spoke about last week, analogy, right? That even when God reveals to himself that he does, uh, he, he's revealed his attributes to, to us, right? He cares for us. He, he's angry with the wicked every day. Those things are all true. But as for how we understand that as creatures, we need to understand that even him telling us that about himself is analogical. It's not like one-to-one, -one, I know exactly what this means and exactly how you get angry or you care or you may feel sorrow over something. Does that make sense? Yeah, and please, I'd love to talk more. Okay, I'm sorry, I have to move. I've got five minutes. Okay. So those were the big ones, like the heavy lifts, right? And the reason I spoke about them, frankly, if they sounded like a bit, like a lot, it's because those are the ones I don't think we really maybe talk about as much. But I think that if we understand those ones, the ones that we began with, it really helps everything to kind of fall into place. It's like, wait, is God angry with me? And like, is, is he changing his mind? Is he going to let me go? No, he's made a promise to you and he doesn't change. At all. Like, this is encouraging. And so the last two attributes we'll just touch on very briefly. This is not all the attributes, as I said. I'm trying to whet your appetite, okay? Um, the goodness of God. God is good. And he gives good gifts to his children. And he's shown us his goodness in that while we were still sinners... He loved us enough to die for us. This is the goodness of God. And further, as I mentioned before, he's promised that even in this world where we experience suffering and we experience hardship, and frankly, there's just a lot of questions that come up, for me at least, that I don't have a solution to. 
And there's a distinct possibility I'll never have a solution to them. Why is this happening to me in this life? He's promised that he will work all those things out for good for those who love him. And that ultimately he will fulfill the work he began in us and glorify us on the last day. All right, that is the goodness of God. And finally, the righteousness of God. Uh, when we say that God is righteous, it, the word righteous basically encompasses a, a sort of legal dimension, which is uh, it's, it's strict conformity, I have written here, strict conformity to a law or a rule and keeping it in every measure of sense. This can be comforting because, frankly, sometimes the, the things that are done to us and we see done to loved ones or we see done by despots and rulers in the world, it's comforting to know that God is just and that he has his laws and that he will keep those rules and execute those judgments in his own time perfectly. On the other hand, it's frightening because you and I break those laws and we break those rules all the time. And it says that God is righteous and that he's just. How do we get around this? And the answer is, and this is a great place to wrap up, that not only did Christ, when he came, uh, die for the sins that had been committed and that were being committed and that would be committed in the future, he died for all of those, he also lived a life which perfectly fulfilled all of those requirements that God keeps. And he had the only perfect, righteous, good life. And so two things happen at the crucifixion. And we'll end here. One, when Christ dies for us, we give him our sin. And he dies for it on the cross. But an exchange happens in that his righteous life, his perfect keeping of the laws, never sinning, that perfect life is given to us and we do a swap. And so now, instead of sin on my record that must be judged, it's been given to Christ. And he's died for it. And now when God looks at me, he sees the works, the perfect accomplishments of Christ. And so this is the dual benefit of Christ, in that he's taken our sin and he's died for it. He's given us his righteousness, and we live in that. And so this, when we read things in the Bible that, frankly, just make you depressed, you know, I mean... You read Paul and it gets scary. I'm warning you, like I warned you before. <laughs> um, or the Ten Commandments, we break them. Our conscience condemns us. This, how are we supposed to look at it? Those things should, and I think it's natural. They, were, they, they result in guilt. We feel guilty over the things that we've done, we've said, we've thought. Even as Christians. But then we hear the gospel and what Christ has done for us. Not only has he died for those sins, but he's given us his righteous life. That's the gospel. That's grace. The grace of God has come to us. The stranger who was estranged from us has come in. And he's met with us. And he has given us his righteousness. And what does that result in? Well, it should result in, as we learn more and more about it, it should result in gratitude uh, to know that this unchanging God has, has, has called us, he's made promises to us, he's given his son for us, and he's promised that he is good, and he cares for us, and he will bring us home to the end. And so those are the three stages we move through as we consider the doctrine of God and we read the scriptures where we find God.
It's guilt, grace, and gratitude. The law tells us, it gives us that guilt, and it says you have to do this. You have to do it. The gospel comes to us in the grace of God, and it says Jesus did it. It's done. And then gratitude wells up from that. And we live for him. Haltingly, falteringly, imperfectly, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So thank you very much for coming. Uh, Let's pray and uh, we'll get you out of here. Father, thank you again um, for your revelation to us in your word. Help us to grasp that more. Help us to understand that. Help us to be grateful and to live in light of that, knowing that you've promised that you will keep us until the end. Uh, So we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. Um, And we ask your blessing upon the sermon and the service um, here in just a little while. In Jesus' name, amen.